as we were singing, I was thinking of um, some words that I had heard from the late Rich Mullins. If you know that name, he, that's the author of the well-known song, um, Awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns and so on. One of the things that I had heard uh, Mullins say was he talked about how he was a uh, musical artist. And he says, look, I want you I'm a worship leader, musical artist. I want you to come to my concerts. I want you to buy the tickets. I want you to buy the cassettes. At the time, it was the 90s. And I want, I want you to, to help fund what I do. But I want you to know that you should go to church. Because when you go to church, you don't have to buy a ticket. And those people love you. And, and I've just held on to those words for years. And I just want to say that um, I've been to many Christian concerts so far in my life, but nothing really compares to worshiping with God's family, the church. And so I love getting to do this every single week with you. Uh, turn in your Bible to Psalm 19. One of the basic Christian claims that is out there is this. That God is personal and that he reveals himself to us. We do not believe in a God of deism, a deist God who creates everything and then spins it like a top and, and lets it just go off and is disconnected. We believe in a God who not only creates everything but is personally involved with his creation. And he shows up and he's in the lives of his people. There's a, a word that we use to describe how he shows up. And that is the word revelation. When I say revelation, perhaps you think of the book of Revelation in the back of your Bible. It's not revelations, it's revelation, okay? It's revelation. And what is that? It's an, it's an unveiling, a disclosing of something that you could not have known on your own. Something that was hidden before is now being revealed. And so the Bible, I believe, says to us, that the greatest thing that God reveals are not merely facts about what he does or how we should live, but it's, but it's who he is. The greatest revelation that God can give you is himself. And so um, if you're one of those liturgically minded people, you know that today is traditionally referred to as Trinity Sunday. And I think that's fitting that the triune Lord were reminded reveals himself to us. That's the Christian claim. And, and yet, while we know that's true on paper, that God reveals himself to us, our lived reality, I think, for many, is that this is the thing that maybe pastors don't speak enough about. Maybe we, in Christian company, don't talk about. It's the silence of God, particularly in the midst of our suffering. God, you speaks. You're silent as my mic goes out as I say that. <laughs> or with the psalmist, Psalm 44. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Is that you this morning? You're saying, wake up, Lord, because I'm in a mess right now. The preacher says, I will find you when I seek you with all my heart. But I've been seeking you and I'm not getting nothing. I need clarity. How do I know when God's speaking to me? 
make this even more vivid and contrast the silence of God in the midst of what Scripture says, I think of a, a little book called Night by Ellie Wiesel. Perhaps you've read it. It's a story, it's only about 120 pages, but it is one of the most emotionally powerful stories I have ever read. It tells the story of Elie Wiesel, who uh, lived in Romania and was captured by the Nazis in 1944 and was taken to Auschwitz concentration camp, and he was also taken later to Buchenwald. And there's harrowing stories. There's a story about how there was denial in the town that he was living in. They were hearing rumors of what was happening, and yet they said that would never happen here until it did. Um, there's a lady on the train as they're being taken to Auschwitz who's, who's yelling out, losing her mind in a prophetic way. It seems like she knows what's going to happen. He goes on a death march from Auschwitz to Buchenwald. Um, his own father deteriorates and dies. He watches this happen. And then at the end of the story, he's liberated. He survives. That's why he can write the book. He's liberated from the Allies, uh, by the Allies in in Buchenwald concentration camp. By the way, we had the chance to go there in 2019, and about 60,000 people were, were killed there. And hundreds of thousands went through this place. But there's one story that Ellie talks about that is probably the most shocking in the entire book. And it makes us confront that question where is God? And is he silent in the midst of our suffering? In this account, uh, Elie Wiesel speaks of, he says there were, were three individuals who were put up to be hung. And all of the, the guards and all of the prisoners were, were assembled to watch this hanging happen. There were two men and there was one boy. And so here's the, how the account goes. The two men shouted, long live liberty, but the boy was silent. Where is merciful God? Where is he? Someone behind me was asking. And at the signal, the three chairs were tipped over, and there was total silence in the camp. On the horizon, the sun was setting, and then the guard screamed, caps off. His voice quivered. As for the rest of us, we were weeping, and then we had to march past the victims. The two men were no longer alive, but the third rope was still moving. The child, too light, was still breathing. And so he remained for more than half an hour, lingering between life and death. And again behind me, I heard the same man asking, for God's sake, where is God? And from within me, I heard a voice answer, where he is, this is where, hanging right there from the gallows. The rest of the story is about Ellie's inner rebellion and hatred towards a God who is silent. Have you ever talked to someone who maybe at one point was claimed Christianity and yet something tragic happened to them and, and then they say, where was God when I needed him in this moment? I, I have found myself on the receiving end of conversations like that. Those are not easy conversations. It makes us confront that question, does God actually speak? Is he silent when it matters most? question I confronted when I was in college. It went like this. What's the dividing line between my own imagination and where God begins to speak? The line seemed to be so blurred for me at the time, and I found myself going, well, maybe it's just my imagination and God doesn't speak. 
That's what was happening in my mind. Does he speak? How do we know? That's what's before us today. And so if you find yourself in crisis going, God, I need you, where are you? I need to hear from you this morning. Wake up. Stop sleeping. I need you. This morning is for you. Let me read from Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words, do you see the emphasis? I'm doing that intentionally. Their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber. And like, and like a strong man, it runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the earth and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. When we open up the Bible and we ask the question whether God speaks, we read Psalm 19, the answer is a very strong, yes, he does speak. Perhaps not in the way that we would expect at first. Maybe when you think of two people speaking to one another, you think of two friends perhaps in a coffee shop, uh, sitting over a coffee and confiding in one another. That's not the picture that we have here. What Psalm 19 gives us is it tells us that God speaks to us in two ways. He speaks to us in the book of nature, and he speaks to us. We'll read further on, starting in verse 7 in a moment. He speaks to us in the book of nature, and he speaks to us in the book of Scripture. General revelation, special revelation. We'll, we'll unpack this together. Let's look at the first part. He, he reveals himself through the book of nature. This is what has been called general revelation. You notice how the words begin here. The heavens declare, the sky above proclaims, day to day pours out speech. You see those words there, reveals and, and speech and words, voice, voice again, words. You see that in verse three and four. It, what the psalmist is doing is he's taking non-human things and he's personifying it, giving them human qualities. The sun doesn't speak, but yet... It really does in another real true way. Nature has something to say. It is speaking. It speaks to the knowledge of God's handiwork. That's what Christians believe. You take a drive and you head down towards Byron Bible Camp to Lake Byron and you see the bright blue sky. Do you ever take a moment when, the, when, when it's bright blue out there and go, why is this here? How did it get here? Do you ever find yourself, I find myself doing this when I'm on a drive and I look at the, the sun setting and I go, am I the only person? Am I the only person seeing the sunset from this angle here, the way God has painted with his brush the entire sky? Did, did you do this, Lord, just so that I would witness it and be in awe of you? When you look at the sky, at the sky and you see how it proclaims his handiwork, day-to-day -day pouring out speech, it proclaims the majesty of God. That's what this passage is saying. Or maybe you make your way to Byron Bible Camp and you're there and you're sitting on a bench and you're looking out at the lake. You see a, see a bird overhead. A sense of peace comes over you. Why? What is it about being in nature, being in a calm place, 
where, where it calms your heart, gives you a sense of awe. You move from, from what's just around us and you look up to the sun, don't look at it, but when you consider the sun, it's 93 million miles away. It's exactly far enough so that we don't get burned up. It's close enough as well. It's close enough so that we don't freeze. You look at the beauty, perhaps, of your spouse or a friend or loved one. You look at the spark in my three-year-old's eye over there. What is it about beauty that, even if just for a moment, it transcends us? I think when we pause and we look at the beauty, the vastness all around us of what God has made, the landscape around us, the orderliness around us, it points to something beyond John Paul Sartre's question that's quoted by Francis Schaeffer in his book I've referenced before, he is there and he is not silent, says the most basic question that the philosopher can ask is this, why is there something rather than nothing? What's the point? How did it all get here? And Christians, when they look at this, they answer the question and they say, the reason why it is there, they say with guys like Calvin, they say, the universe is the theater of God's glory. That you look at that theater and you see what it's pointing to all around you. You humble yourself by going back to Psalm 8 of what we looked at before a couple weeks ago, Psalm 8, 6, that he has made all of this and yet he's mindful of us. It humbles us. And yet, there's a big problem if the universe is speaking the nature is speaking. There's a problem, though, with our ears, and that's what I want us to get to. There's a problem with our ears. Psalm 19, 1 through 6 speaks about God's glory. Can we hear properly what it's saying? I would say that the answer is no. I'll give you an example. There's a, there's a fun little story in Acts 17, and Paul shows up to the Oropagus. He shows up to this place where uh, all of the, the, the Epicurean, Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers of the day were meeting in Athens, and they had uh, different statues. They would, man, I, I would love this just to sit back and chat it up about different ideas. That's what these guys are doing. And so these are the greatest minds of the day, as Paul shows up, he sees an altar, and it says that this altar is to the unknown God. And so Paul takes that altar, and he begins to speak. They give him a hearing, and here's what he says. To these great minds, he says, What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples. Made by man, nor is he served by human hands. He speaks about what this creator has done. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising this man from the dead. And so he says this to these people. And I, I want to say, some people have looked at this passage and have gone, look, Paul's starting from common ground. Here's the unknown God that you didn't know when you were making this altar. I actually don't think that's what Paul is doing. I think when he points out the altar to the unknown God, he's saying, this shows your ignorance. 
I'm telling you this in love. This shows your ignorance that you don't really know God as high-minded as you may be. And so the greatest minds are not capable of hearing properly from the testimony of trees and rocks. The stars are not good enough, let alone anyone else, any of us, to rightly know who God is or what his son has done. This first book we've been talking about, General Revelation, can only speak so much. Let me me give you its limitations about what it can say. You look at the vastness of the universe, what does that tell you? God is very powerful. There's a being out there who's very powerful. You consider the intricacy of creation underneath a microscope. You get bit by a gnat and you, you hit it. And you look at that ugly little thing there and you go, as ugly and as painful as it is, look how detailed it is right there on my hand. You pan all the way out and you consider the vastness of the universe, all of that, and you say God is a God of detail. The orderliness of the seasons. They speak about his glory, his creativity, his penchant for beauty. You look at humanity, and you see that cross cultures and across time, there seems to be a general morality, some objective moral standard that transcends all these boundary lines that exist. Like it's bad to murder, for example, right? That you should protect your own. That there's something hardwired into us. And it seems to point to another, a moral lawgiver, if you will. And yet these, you can only say so much. Do you see what I'm pointing out to you? There's only so much that you can say when you just look at what's around you. You can't build a theology, a natural theology on this. The problem, though, isn't with the nature. It's, the problem is with us. Romans 1, if you read it, Romans 1 is so relevant this month. And Romans 1 says, in a strong way, the problem is that men and women have suppressed the knowledge of God. Here's how offensive the Bible can be to us, offensive to our own senses. It says, when you sin, when you rebel against God, whether you ever read the Bible or not, you know better. You know better, and you're suppressing the knowledge that you actually have. And so that proverbial person who's on the desert island who has never heard about God and is good, what about him, Aaron? Doesn't he get to, is that fair for God to not bring him into heaven if he's never heard the gospel? Two things. There's only one good person who has ever lived, and his name is Jesus Christ. There's nobody else. But secondly, what Romans 1 says is that when you hear the speaking of nature all around you, and then you reject God, that is enough to condemn you. I want you to consider the seriousness of Romans 1. As there are so many in our society who ignore the truth of God's word, ignore the testimony of what is proper to nature and our culture this particular month, they are suppressing what they know to be true. That's what Romans 1 says. And so we're guilty. We stand guilty. And this is where the second book comes in. Thank goodness for the second book. Read with me verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. 
The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them, there is a great reward. We're now introduced to the second book, and that is the book of Scripture, or what we would call special revelation. We're introduced to God's law, his testimony, his precepts, his commandments, his rules. That picture that David paints, he says, I'm so thankful for it. When, when, I, when I partake, it's like it's better than honey. No wonder he meditates on it day and night. It is sweet to his soul and helps him to be warned to know what is right and what is wrong. He's warned. And there's also a great reward for keeping this book. And so in comparison to nature, God's word speaks directly at specific times to specific people and specific places. And you read the Bible and what you'll see is that there's so many ways this special revelation shows up. Happens in visions in scripture. You have God's miraculous actions, dreams. Your old men, young, old and young will, will dream dreams. As the prophet Joel speaks about. There's big moments where God shows up in what we would call theophanies. You think of Job 38. Job has been complaining and saying, if I could just get a hearing before the Lord, then this will all be sorted out. And then he shows up. And he's like, I shouldn't have said anything. There's a terrifying picture of the Lord when he arrives. What I find to be so fascinating about God's arrival when he shows up, whether it's the burning bush or his, his back when Moses sees him, or whether it's in the garden, do you ever notice that it's not so much a description about what he looks like, but what the Bible gives you is more of an emphasis by what he says, about what he says. The emphasis is on his word. And so he speaks. These are all immediate ways of God's direct special revelation. But this book here, this is the immediate way. It is the record of revelation. And so the Bible, the record of revelation, is God's special revelation in entirety. You don't read this book. When I say record, this is what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you read it and you go, well, that was clearly just Matthew saying that. Well, that was, I don't know, Paul, that was just Paul. But this part over here, that was definitely the Lord speaking through that man. No. We believe at Bethesda that every verb, every participle, every single noun, adjective, preposition is all inspired by the Holy Spirit and is given to us. And if it is inspired, it is dependable because of its source. It comes from God. It's dependable, it's unerring, it never will lead you astray. It is sure, it is right, it is pure or clean, true, and better than honey. That's, that's what we're given here. And so it revives the soul when you actually pay attention to it. You have joy, light, and all of the blessings that come from it. The thing that gets me about knowing that we have this book, my father-in-law is Right now, he is uh, flying, making a trip to fly over to Africa, and one of the things that he does is he presents this to people. He gives books and resources, and man, it is so precious to them. You mean, I actually get to have access to God's word? 
Most of us have multiple Bibles in our home. I probably have, here's a gift you never need to give a pastor is a Bible. I have like 20 on my shelf, right? I'm not joking. We can take it for granted, and yet we have to consider the grace of how God has condescended and come down to us. I've said this before. Calvin talks about this. God is like a wet nurse who takes up the infant and lisps so that the child can understand, gets down on their level. How embarrassing it is to think of God in this way, that he sees you, his child, and he picks you up and he speaks in your own language. He condescends and he speaks to us in Greek and in Hebrew and in actually the words of God's word in English. It is unmerited grace. We didn't deserve for him to condescend. When you go to the doctor, much of the time and money that you can spend is not just about uh, getting medicine. A lot of it can be spent on getting the right diagnosis. You may not like the diagnosis, and so you go and get a second opinion. You may be willing to drive hours. You may be willing to even fly. But the information of knowing that diagnosis is precious so that you would know what to do. The same thing is true with this book. God does not owe it to us to explain to us our sin problem. He would have been just to, to, to let us flail in the darkness by ourselves. He didn't have to condescend and come down and reveal himself to us. He could have stayed where he was, and he would have been right to do that against those of us who are rebels against him. And so when he does come down and he reveals to you the reality of your sin nature, it's a grace when he does that. It's a grace when he does that. And the chief grace that he gives, it is the revelation that John 1, and we spent all spring and part of winter looking at, in John 14, 7 through 17, the chief grace that God gives you it's the revelation of his son, Jesus. Christ reveals the Father. And by revealing the Father, you know that you can have life in his name because you have seen his death and resurrection. You know the problem, and yet you know the solution. God doesn't owe it to you to give you that, and yet he does. I've told you when we started this series that the entire Psalms point to Christ. Now consider how Psalm 19 does the same thing. You see how creation speaks to the glory of God, and yet who created all things? Well, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And so the word that was spoken creates everything, which now speaks back and testifies to who he is. David has the Old Testament law in front of him, the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, and yet Jesus is the fulfillment of that Old Testament law. And so is the law of the Lord perfect and sure and right and pure, true, Yes, and that is exactly who Jesus is as well. He is the one who is perfect, sure, right, pure, and true. When you look at creation and you consider the handiwork of Jesus, and then you look at how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything right here in verse 7 through 11, you see that you just can't get rid of Jesus. He just keeps popping up everywhere. You can't get away from him. Again, those words from S.M. Lockridge, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him out of your head. And you can't outlive him and you can't live without him. This is who Jesus is. And so he's given us this second book so that we would be able to know salvation properly. We know the problem and therefore the solution. Okay? This is what is true. If I stopped there, that would be a lecture. A sermon 
tells you what is true and then also what to do. Here we go. Let's apply this to our lives. I want to give you just a few things. First, understand that you need book two in order to read book one. You are spoiled by the truth, the riches of God's truth. You no longer have to look at that sky in bewilderment, but you can know so much about it because book two, God's special revelation, reads back onto general revelation. You can understand why nature is so beautiful and yet so terrifying and destructive. You can make sense of why a tornado can wipe out a town or a tsunami, an entire city, because you can look at the majesty of God's creation and then also understand that it is broken due to a fall, Genesis 3, that distorts this creation until Christ comes back. The Christian can look at nature and that answer to the question of why is there something rather than nothing? And you can see that it's to the glory of God, the origin of the universe, I heard a story by one apologist one time who talked about how there were scientists who studied and studied and studied and climbed the mountain of understanding. And when they got to that mountain, they realized that there were a whole bunch of theologians that had been sitting there for centuries. And so those who have looked at God's word understand that God is the creator of all things. Unlike the atheist who cannot answer this question or the agnostic, there is an unmoved mover who stands before time and space and he has made everything. And so you read the book of scripture and then you read that back on to the book of nature. That's the first thing. Second, <laughs> submit and take every thought captive to scripture. I'll give you an example of this. This was at a previous church. There was a gentleman, uh, gentleman might be too kind of a word, uh, but this man had, had a dream. And in the dream, um, he had had a vision that an angel of light appeared to him and said that he, would, he was supposed to leave his wife and family and go after another woman. And so when he, when he came to us and he said, uh, I, I've left my wife and I'm with this woman now, we say, why? And he said, well, it's because I had the dream. And, and we said, it's very possible you saw something real in that dream, but it, it may not have been an angel of light. It may have been complete and utter darkness. What this man failed to do was filter what he had believed that he had seen through the word of scripture. You ever come across somebody like this who says, I had an encounter, I had an experience, I had, I had this vision, and yet there's something about what they're saying that doesn't line up with the book. It doesn't line up with it. Like this, this man hadn't read 1 Corinthians 7 or Matthew 19 that talks about grounds for divorce. He ignored that and he went his own way. He had failed to take every thought captive and filter it with scripture. So we must do that. I think this leads to, now the fun part, this leads to an interesting question. Can God speak apart from scripture? Can God speak apart from scripture? Well, let's make this real. Um, Tony Howe was here last Sunday, and you remember the story that he told. He talked about that lady who had, uh, who had cancer, and he felt a prompting. He, he felt an impression to, to go knock on her door. He knocks on the door. She answers. He presents the gospel. Nothing happens. A few months, or I, I think you remember, he gives, a, he gives a track. That's what happened, right? He gives a track. And then a little while later, 
whether it was weeks or whatever, he felt prompted once again by the Lord, he said, to go back to that same place, knock on the door until she answered. He presented the gospel, and she responded in salvation. And you remember that picture that we saw where she's baptized in the hospital, right? And so the question is, was Brother Tony off his rocker? Did he really hear from God? Really? Just make a comment here. There's something that I've noticed in my own prayer life that when I find myself in lockstep with the Lord, when I'm reading his word with my hands folded in prayer, I find that the words of the page jump out into my life. And I think I may have mentioned this a couple weeks to you, uh, ago to you, but I have been feasting on the reality of Psalm 8, 6. It just keeps popping up. That God is mindful of me, man. I can't get over that. Who is he? Who am I that he's mindful of me? And so in this last week for me, which, is, which was quite full, as I'm going from hospital visit to sermon preparation to dealing with this thing and that thing, there's just that reminder. I hear the Lord going, I'm mindful of you. There's something that happens when, you, when you're in God's word praying and saying, Lord, speak to me through it. It ends up overflowing into your daily life. But you see how I'm speaking. The word is connected to what I'm hearing. If I read somewhere, I think the Great Commission says that we're to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, Brother Tony, was he hearing properly, keeping in mind Matthew 28, was he, keep, was he hearing properly when he went and knocked on that lady's door? Duh, of course he was, absolutely, because what he was doing was grounded and directly linked in God's word out of the overflow of walking in step with him in prayer and in reading his word. He could hear the Lord speak through that and know what he should do. There was an impression, there's impressions that come from walking daily with God, but they conform to scripture. And so I just want to say this, you come across someone who says, God said to me, and it doesn't line up with what the book says, you run, friends. Run from that person. Run from the person who says, I've seen so much destruction from the kind of person who says, God gave me a vision, and you're supposed to marry that person, or here's who will be president, or X, Y, and Z. And they end up being wrong. It is, it is confusing to people around them. I've seen that cause destruction in people's lives. You take that kind of person, you say, friend, submit what you are saying to God's word. You filter it through this. Let us be good Bereans that take every thought captive. Let us keep in mind what Paul says to Timothy. My prayer, my prayer is that Bethesda would be marked by what Paul says to Timothy. We would keep this in mind, that we wouldn't be like this. For the time is coming when people will endure, not endure sound teaching. That's who we should be. We should endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. I could give you example after example, both personal and also out there in modern evangelicalism, of this happening right now. We do not graduate from God's word ever, and then move on to the really exciting stuff. This is the most exciting thing right here. You don't move past this. You submit your experiences, your traditions, if you're in our Luther class this morning, your traditions, your worldview to Scripture, and Scripture is that final authority. 
sola scriptura, scripture alone. I want to encourage you also, think about the resources, friend, that, 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 that you're taking in, whether it's podcasts, books, sermons, whatever. The best books that I have read are the ones that help me understand the Bible better. There's about 20 of you ladies that have just got done reading that book, Prodigal God. You, you will never see the story of the prodigal son the same again, right? Because you know there's also a prodigal older brother. Read books like that and it'll help illuminate and help you understand scripture and what it has to say. The third and last thing, as you read the book of scripture, let it read you, friend. Let it read you. You look at verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. How wonderful the Lord is that he loves you so much. He not only wants to take and, take and address the sin that you know better, but he wants to take the sin that you, you don't even realize that you're doing. You read the Old Testament. Understand this, friend. You, you're not guiltless just because you don't know that you're sinning. Uh, there's all kinds of sacrifices. There's all kinds of things that are needed to atone for that are talked about in the Old Testament about sin that you don't realize that you're doing hidden sin. And David says, Lord, cut that out of me as you cut out the sin I know as well. There's just far too many people, you know, out there. Far too many people who read God's word, who say they know God's word. And then they use their tongue improperly. I referred to James 3.8 before, and I think I need to refer to it again. It's a good reminder for all of us. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Savior, Lord and Father. And with it, we accuse people who are made in the image and likeness of God. We have the capacity to read that and go, oh yeah, I know exactly someone who's doing that right now. And we never take a moment to go, me, that's me. Luther was famous for saying, that our hearts are like idol factories and they're bent in on themselves. If anything, what we should be doing when we're pointing towards ourselves is letting the book speak to us and say, Lord, how am I doing with how I use my tongue, for example? Am I the kind of person that curses others and then also praises God? Am I the kind of person that when I speak to, others, speak to others and I talk about someone behind their back, I'm doing that so that I can raise up my own status and get people on my side? Man, would we not be the kind of people that say, yeah, that's true, but never let it actually translate and change how we use this thing or how we act with our hands or how we treat others? God doesn't want this, and he loves us so much that he has revealed to us the ways that we have hidden sin and revealed sin. And so I want you to keep in mind, friend, you have a blind spot somewhere, and so do I. Hang out, with, hang out with someone long enough, and you'll figure out what their thing is. And this is why we need each other, to read scripture to each other, to take this book and get it in us. 
You not reading this book, friend, is hurting your neighbor and your loved ones around you because you're not being transformed so that you can speak truth into somebody else's life. You can speak into their blind spots. God loves us so much, he wants us to transform us. And so my question for us, my question for us, is how much longer are we going to let the sin that we know exists in our life continue to be there and not let God speak into it? There are those of us here who have just really unhealthy ways of acting that are defense mechanisms from pain that you may have experienced at some point in your life. And you haven't dealt with that. And my heart breaks for you, especially for those of us who live in that and then never let the book read us, or let others read the book to us. The enemy wants to say to us, the enemy wants to say, if you listen to God, if you actually open the book and you, and you, and you listen to it, God's going to be condemning. He's going to be that terrifying judge that you'll never be able to make a right account in front of. That's what the enemy says. But I'm here to remind you this morning that the gospel says that there is neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let God's word speak and read your life and you will find yourself letting go of what you can't control, living in the peace of God that only he can give as you're transformed into the image of his son. The last verse is the most famous verse in Psalm 19. Maybe, maybe verse one is a good contender, but verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Does God speak? Yes. He has much to say. My prayer for you is that when you drive home, or if you're on a walk, or if you're driving somewhere this week, that you would look to the sky, you look at what's around you, and then you would be reminded that there is a creator who has something to say to you. I pray that God would bother you through nature this week if he has to. He is there and he is not silent. And so let him speak and read us this week and watch as he continues that work of sanctification. Let's take his word and meditate upon it. Let it transform us. And I think when we do that, we'll experience the joy of being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. you've enjoyed today's message if you would like to know more about bethesda church you can check us out on the web by going to our website which is bethesdamb.org that's bethesda m as in mary b as in boy.org or check us out on facebook by searching for bethesda church of Huron. have a blessed day